Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Des Trainer, who's the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Intercom. Des, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. My background goes, my professional career started, I guess, in 2003 when I graduated from university. I attempted a PhD. I was studying literally how we could teach computer science better. I published a few papers, one journal paper, and ultimately got bored with academia. I, I will say I got bored. I'll also respectfully say I, I don't think I was cut out for it. Like I have good friends who went on to complete their PhDs. I'm, I'm just not one of them. It wasn't my forte. I started getting distracted by the internet, specifically the Web 2.0 era, and things like usability and human-computer interaction and all of the sort of early days of the web. If you recall sites like you know ClearLeft's blog or Alista Part or HappyCog, the design folks, or any of that, I was religiously following all of that, including all the early 37 Signals work and buying books. And I just realized that was a much greater passion. So I decided to become a usability analyst for a Dublin-based consultancy did that for one year and kind of learned how to consult. Then we, my, I met up with Owen, who was CEO of Intercom. Um, we started a consultancy together where we built and designed and built web software for mostly for startups, for Silicon Valley startups. And in doing so, we built our own product. And when we had customers, we wanted to talk to them. So we built Intercom as a solution to that. And it then became obvious after a, a little bit of market traction that Intercom was a bigger idea than anything else we were doing. So we decided to go all in on Intercom. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, right? You hear that with other stories too, like Slack ended up you know, coming out of a, another company. Twitter came out of another company. Why do you think that is? I think it, it's a Slack and Intercom have a parallel in that we built something to solve a problem while we were trying to solve another problem. And it turned out the problem that we did solve, like the, the thing we most directly detected was, gosh, there's a lot of people trying to run SaaS companies and there's no good way for SaaS companies to talk to their customers. You can basically use a bulk email tool like MailChimp and deal with all the replies, but there's no easy structured way to kind of talk to customers. And that was one of many problems we experienced while we were trying to make our previous product, which was called Exceptional. We were trying to make that a success. And it felt like probably the one that was easiest to address. So we started to build a, like the, I really mean like the most microscopic embryonic solution to it. We literally built a speech bubble inside the product that popped up whenever we had something to say to our customers. And that alone generated enough buzz with the existing user base. People were literally saying things like, I don't really care about this exceptional product. However, I love this speech bubble thing they're using to talk to me. How do I get one of these? And over time, we built the ability to reply, to choose who would see the message and who wouldn't, to see who, who has seen the message. From there, we realized we were building a tool to basically connect businesses and customers. And that was, so like, so in our case, it, it was just totally self-solving a problem. I think in general, like if me and you, Eric, decided to go and build a new, let's say we hate project management and we decide we need to build a whole new project management tool that no one's ever seen before, the chances are we'd probably fail. 
because there's dozens of project management tools. However, along the way to failing, we'll probably have exposed yourself to like 10, 20, 30 different ways of, of things that are clunky as hell. And we might say, you know what? Hiring remote engineers is clunky as hell. Incorporating a company is clunky as hell. Like a, a simple lightweight chat app for, for teammates to talk to each other that's like much faster than Slack is clunky as hell. And we'll just keep going. And eventually if we... Uh, our, the, the chance of our master problem when we just kind of riff and brainstorm without a lot of per, personal experience, the chance of us nailing that is pretty slim as evidenced by the just general success rate of startups. But if you're truly like a builder maker type of person and you actually solve a credible problem that most people experience when trying to build, run, staff a software company, then you're probably solving a real problem. Now, that alone doesn't guarantee you success, but it certainly like narrows in the sort of the, the zip code of you're now at least playing in a space that's definitely worth solving. And I think that's what happened to Slack when, you know, building a game, games are hard. Games, the games industry is a hits industry, you know. However, how big is the market for people who want to talk to their teammates? Pretty big, you know. And, and I think, like, I, Twitter is slightly different. In the consumer space, you're kind of taking a bet on, on consumer behavior. So I, I don't think that the parallel works there. But I do, I do genuinely think... Um, most of the time when you're solving a problem you've experienced directly yourself and it's not unique to you or your domain or your country or or your peculiarities you're kind of you're doing something that most startups fail to do which is you're solving a real problem yeah i think that's an interesting point i see a lot of these big companies that have started from solving a problem that they were facing right so that yep. they knew really deeply as opposed to like hey it would be a really great idea if we could disrupt the trucking industry or whatever it happened to be because you if you're know, totally exogenous to that industry, yeah, it's a disaster. And the other extreme of this is like, you know what? I feel like there's something going to happen in the like internal social network space. Let's hire like a research team to find out what we should build. Like, I think it's not not that's not to like you know shit on research teams or even social internal networks or whatever the hell they might be. It's mostly to say like um, it's an espoused behavior or a fictitious behavior or a hypothesized behavior versus one you're living every day. You know, and that's the kind of the core difference. Yeah, love it, love it. So take me through the early days of Intercom. You know, what was it like as kind of like, I guess not really a first-time founder because you started Exceptional too, but what was it like founding that company and what advice would you give to the first-time founders out there? What it's like is mostly you're almost always engineering constrained. Like we're like, you know, I and uh, Owen were both designers and Kieran and David were engineers. So the constraint of engineers is actually quite interesting. It forces you to only work on the most important things. And in fact, it's a dangerous thing when a team gets too top-heavy with PMs or designers because you end up having ideas at a faster rate than you have ability to sort of execute them. And that causes all sorts of downstream problems. However, when uh, when you only have two engineers you can and you literally have to cherry-pick what is the most important thing to advance the company, that's what you spend most of your days doing. You have You, you, know, you flesh out an idea to its fullest. To give you an example, like we fleshed out an idea for doing in-app surveys in 2012 that we still haven't shipped, you know, uh, and like I mean, like literally full-on pixel-perfect mockups to works. I think most of what you have to do in your days is make sure that everything you're doing is literally the most important thing you can do for your skill set for the state of the company as it is today, and that's like holding that line is insanely hard. As more and more people join, as things scale, as more customers uh, get added to the platform, et cetera. So I think that's like, you know, that plus like 12 hour days is probably what the job was. And then after we started to get customers, which, and, and like 
getting customers itself is a whole area I won't repeat. I wrote a really long blog post about this because perhaps the most common question I get is, how did Digicom get its first customers? And I wrote a long piece that explains exactly how that is. And of course, now when I give people that answer, they're like, Any, anything easier? Was there a cheaper way? Uh, <laughs> the answer is genuinely for like maybe like four or five weeks for like six hours a day, I'd guess, I was mailing people uh, personally and trying to get them to use Intercom by sending them screenshots of what Intercom would look like, faking up bits of data to make Intercom look like it was designed for them. Like just to say, like, here's what it'll look like if you go ahead and use it. And it was like, you know, direct response marketing. And one by one, we eventually got to 100 customers. And then people started to see Intercom in places. And then it started to grow. And once you kind of hit that vein of growth, it was the first time, like our, everything we'd done previously, we had gotten buzz and popularity for little bits and pieces of things we'd done over the years. For example, we built a product called Quitter, which was a thing that let you know when someone stopped following you on Twitter. Uh, like, and that went viral and we had like hundreds of thousands of users. But this was the first time where we're like, we are definitely solving a real problem and people love our solution so much, they're telling each other about it. And the product was just you know, it got to a point where yeah, one of the features of Intercom is it'll send you a mail every day to tell you who signed up for your product. And I just remember watching those mails go from like two people a day signed up to 10 people. And I remember the first day we crossed 100 and I remember the first day we crossed 1,000. And it's just been like an epic grind of like trying to make sure you continue to capture customers and build what they want and make sure that like today we're like 600 and whatever, 50 people. There's like 260 who directly or indirectly report into me. And the vast majority of the work is just making sure that everyone's got all the context they need to make the important judgment trade-offs and prioritize correctly. That's, that job hasn't changed at that abstract level, but the actual tactical activities day-to-day for me have obviously massively changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, at a, we've talked about this too internally at Pendo, but at a certain level, it becomes you know, all about people, right? And, mm-hmm. and you could argue even in the beginning, it's all about getting the right people there, but yeah. management, in, at, as things start to scale, it becomes all about people. I think that's 100% true. People, and I think context is best shared in the form of people. Like the thing I often say to, to folks internally is if you want somebody to make the same decision that you would make, they need to have all the same access to all the same data that you have. Plus they need to understand the same principles and processes the same way you do. Otherwise they're not going to make the same decision. It's just literally not possible. Or if they do, it's a fluke. And like that is ultimately the, the job of management is like making sure that, that like no one is, is unfairly biased against due to lack of information and that everyone has what they need to know. And if you do all that correctly, you don't need to micromanage. You just need to feed context. And you know, sometimes feeding context can look like micromanagement. Like you do realize our target segment has changed and here's our new customer group. But like, you know, I think the the worst thing you can do to run a company is to have this whole like um I'm not going to tell you what I'm looking for. Just keep working and I'll tell you when it's good or whatever. You need to like be really open with people about here's everything we're trying to do. Here's everything we know about the market. And here's what, how we're going to judge what an effective product release looks like. So our estimate is we're going to get like a thousand customers and we want an NPS score above 60. And like ideally people then don't have to bring you stuff to get rated, even though that might be like make you feel powerful. Ideally, what will happen is people can rate themselves because they're like, this isn't working. We need to work harder on this. The adoption over here isn't good enough. The NPS over here isn't good enough. Like, you need to put yourself out of a job by making sure that everyone can effectively simulate you in their head, knowing the way you think, know, knowing the standards, the open sort of standards and transparent standards that the company runs on. That, that's, it's like probably the most important thing to do. It's the only way you'll scale. Yeah, I mean, kind of like what would Des say? 
you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, in order uh, to do that, sense, you have to- Or like, yeah, how does Intercom value quality here? You know, is, yeah. is, you know, because uh, I'd actually take myself out of it. I'm not going to be there all the time, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. but the frameworks you put in place, right? And, yes, absolutely. And you have to yeah. provide that, that set of context and the transparency to be able to access that data. So you have mm-hmm. to have those product principles, goals, missions, metrics, right? Yeah. Take me through what you have to have to make that make sense, right? What are you empowering people with? The biggest and most important thing is the vision and the mission. So like, what does the future look like when you've succeeded and, and what are you working on right now to get there? And those things like generally have like a three to five year time horizon. Our mission is to make internet business personal. That's what we want to do. So most of the decisions we make are guided by that. Then our strategy is we sell software in three spaces, uh, sort of sales, marketing, and, and support. And we have a certain target customer, which is a 10 to 500 person company. And we have certain product offerings that we have decided are worth doing. We have things like our support product or our, our chatbot product or our resolution bot product, which is you know an automatic response. And so you have this sort of framework that cascades down. At the very, very top of the framework, you have a very long time horizon. And you can keep trickling it all the way down until what are we doing this quarter? What are we doing this cycle? What are we doing this week? And then some teams, they'll then take it down. If they work in that sort of agile style, they'll go right down to what I'm doing this day. But it all feeds up. like It's all cascading down from like the master plan. And that's like one piece of the puzzle, which is just what the hell are we trying to do? And then separate to that, there are things like our principles for building software. So we have, I think it's like we have three master principles in Intercom. They're on our blog. I think there's like start with an understanding of the problem. Let me see if I can actually pull them up. It'll probably be easier. Uh, There's like, yeah, we say basically start with the problem. So the core idea here is that like you start by you have to deeply understand the problem we're solving in Intercom. The thing we hate is when someone says we're going to build tagging because that other site has tagging. It's like that's never going to be enough. In Intercom, you have to be able to exactly explain what the problem is, articulated ideally in the language of a customer. And then the second principle is that we think big and start small. So you have to know, you can't just hack something out the door. You have to know what the bigger picture is and like what does this grow up into? Otherwise, we can have these like horrible little kind of like warts hanging off our software. And then the third is that we ship to learn. So we don't, you know, we believe in getting software into the hands of our customers as early as possible. And we believe in customer feedback. We built a whole product around it. But like you, you know, you have to get, you know, the most important feedback on anything you're going to release will come from your customers. And, and like if there's one question you can count on me to ask in every single product review for the last eight years and the next eight years, it'll be some version of what did the customers say when you showed this to them? And if the answer to that isn't good, I really couldn't care less about every other piece of information that they have in, in, in the in the deck. And then we have like engineering principles and design principles, which I won't go through. They're all on our blog if you search for intercom principles. But that's basically, that answer is like, so if the first, the division, the mission, the strategy, et cetera, if that answer is the what, the rest of it answers to how, which is like, how do we work and all that? And that's perhaps like, the most important pieces. And then there are other, other like bits of context. Like you're probably familiar with the people, product, profit sort of framework. We also are careful to make sure that all of our product managers should understand to some degree the commercial state of their product. What's their churn? What's their activation? What's their engagement? What's their AOR? And all that's necessary because sometimes like as a mature business, you have to react to like a market opportunity. Like, hey, look, we I know we just shipped blah, but it looks like if we just add this one extra feature, we can start closing larger sales. And like we need again, there's just two ways that conversation plays out. The bad way is 
I'm the only person who sees the numbers and I'm like, shit, we should build this. And I run in and I kind of just like, like just force it onto a roadmap somewhere, like kind of disempowering an engineering manager, a PM, a director. And the better way is I just constantly share as much as I can about where our revenue is, what our growth rate is, what our activation rate is, why are people churning off the product? I just make sure that there are systems that have, ensures that everyone has that information so that, it, you know, ideally it happens the exact opposite way around, which is something like, hey folks, we know we said we were going to ship X this quarter, but there's a significant commercial opportunity over here to ship Y instead. So we're going to do Y first and then X. And like when that happens, you know the system is working because it's self-correcting. Yeah, I like that. I like empowering too the, with the PMs with metrics. In particular, I like you mentioned churn. It's one of my kind of rants these days is that PMs should be you know watching and, and frankly, probably compensated on churn. You agree with that? I mean, it, it feels like more of a product initiative than it is, say, customer success, right? Yeah, or, or at the very least, I'd say um, churn generally falls into like a few different buckets, right? You've got like controllable churn, uncontrollable churn, regrettable, unregrettable, blah, blah, blah. But I do agree, like if you were a chef in a restaurant and most people were walking out the door without eating, you'd react. Whereas I do think some organizations do a great job of insulating their product managers from the fact that no one's eating in the restaurant. Uh, so I, I think it, it is a significant issue. The only thing I'd say is like not every PM can control all of the variables. So uh, as in a classic example, like you can overprice a product and churn will be pretty high, even though the yeah, product might yeah. be good. It's just the customer's not in a position to receive enough revenue out of it. You also don't get to choose who's walking in your door as a PM either. So like someone could sign up for your product. Like I could sign up for, like well, a dentist could sign up for Pendo and they're probably not going to get great value out of it. So like you don't control all the variables, but I do think there's like what you'd call regrettable churn, which is can't afford the product, does need the product, doesn't use the product, quits the product. That's the piece where like the PM is, I wouldn't say solely responsible, but mostly responsible. Yeah, no, agreed. Now, do you feel that PMs should own pricing? You mentioned pricing as one of those components. No, I don't think they should because I just, not because they're not capable, but just because I think it's too multifaceted. There are too many external or exogenous concerns. So like, I, I think like you actually need somebody to own pricing who, for whom it can nearly be a full-time job. And, and as your product offerings get complicated, like intercoms is sweet now. Like you don't just buy intercom, you can buy us for support, you can buy us for sales and you can buy add-ons and all that sort of stuff. It's not easy to uh, have like one person who's also supposed to be building software, working through the commercial realities and the modeling of all of that as well. So I think pricing as you grow up turns into a function of like biz up sales, marketing and product. Product's role in pricing is to say what it is, the value it delivers and how, what's a good metric for estimating that value. Sales and marketing is their jobs is basically who can we attract to use this product and what can they afford to use this product? And somewhere you triangulate all of that to kind of come up with a, with a good price. So I, I don't think PM can own it. I, I know, I think if we're in a simpler org, like if it's a note-taking app, yeah, for sure, the, the PM could definitely own pricing too. Yeah, so I mean, what department in an org owns pricing? And, and to your point that I think you just hinted at, does that change over time too? I think it does change because you grow more complex. Uh, today, pricing is like controlled by, within Intercom, it's controlled by product marketing. With peer, and like, I mean pure peer, like the product marketing are responsible for presenting the options, but like there's a, a group of product marketing sales and product are the ones who ultimately agree on it. And I assume in your org, product marketing works in the marketing department? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So pricing falls under marketing, but with a cross-departmental team. Correct. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's jump back a little bit, you know, going back to the early days of, of Intercom. 
And you talk about how you started to see that, I don't want to say product market fit, but I'm going to, you started to see that product market fit just from the growth. You know, mm-hmm. if you gave advice to early stage founders to know whether they've struck that gold or not, what would it be? Like, how do they know they've gotten to that point? There are many different uh, ways, both qualitative and quantitative, to discuss this. I think the more, like the less bullshitty way is to actually look at a bit of data here. I think when you have a reasonably large group of people using the same set of features to deliver the same outcome, and you can get, you know how you're going to get more of those users, that's the kind of the core idea behind product market fit. And there's a few important things there. Large group of users, not small, because you, you don't know. It could be just anecdotal data when it's small numbers. So, so like let's say like over 100 people or 100 accounts or customers using roughly the same set of features. So like you should have identified a core flow that makes sense. And that flow is generally stitched together by like using the like merge feature to tagging the ad account or whatever it is, right? In the same way to get the same results. So the same result matters because it'll feed into your marketing and it's how you're going to basically pitch the product. It's like you can get X from our product. Then I, So I think that that's your first piece. Then the other metric I'd look at is like your kind of usage retention rates. So over time, do people continue to use your product or do they discard it? I, you know, in the early, early days, you have to tailor this to the domain you're working in. Like if you're a tax product, you probably only expect to be used a few times a year. If you're a note-taking app, you should be used every day. So you'll, you'll have to kind of like uh, apply your own judgment to what's an acceptable, reasonable level of usage. And then you want to look for any sign of decay in that. And decay would look like, you know, people get bored, it's buggy, it's ugly, the feature shortcomings are too bad or whatever. So I'd look at all of that, which is all like quantitative, as in you can't bullshit yourself. And then separately, I then look at the ideally your customer feedback has like uh, common themes in it as well. I think when you have a very wide product at the early days, there's a real fear that like some people, you know, people will be trying to pull your product in too many different directions. Whereas when you're kind of getting feedback where most people are asking for the same stuff in the same areas of the product, that's a good sign that you've, you're doing all the right things. Yeah, it's interesting you got you mentioned churn again, right? And, and yeah, yeah, or, or at least like decayed usage. Yeah, yeah, like as in, I think it's really hard to build a successful company off like fractional marginal usage. Yeah. So, so they might not churn in terms of cancel their account or stop paying, but the revenue might be pretty shaky. And yeah, uh, and like yeah, coronavirus like, has has been great for like for rattling out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pre- yeah, precisely. Like it's like how real is this problem? Is it something that oh, you know, once a month it's handy to do blah, or is it like I need this product in my life now? You know. Yeah, and the important thing, and you hinted at it or mentioned it, is in context, right? You you actually use the same example I use, which is tax software. Though I often say yeah. that I never want to use the ideal tax software for me is ones that just integrates all of my data that's already out there in other formats, and I never have to use it, right? Yes, that's of course. Yeah. Software, yeah. <laughs> but I definitely don't want to use tax software that wants me going in there every day. That yeah, idea for sure. Very painful. So. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that think everything's about usage. Like we like we got usage up for, you know, people are logging in, you know, every week. And I was like, is that good? Mm-hmm. You know, like there has to be some context around that too, right? Because Absolutely. sometimes you're just adding inefficiencies to their process. Yeah, yeah totally. Like I, I have a friend who works at Dropbox, so this is something they talk about all the time. Like for me, I probably never log into Dropbox. Doesn't mean I don't use it. You know, Dropbox, the product I buy for Dropbox is peace of mind about all my photos. That's the thing they're selling me. And as long as I never, I've, you know, I'm probably the least active user they have. However, like I have the obviously background sync working, but like from a PM perspective, they're pulling their hair out because they're building all these new like online dashboards and like carousel features for photos and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, don't care, don't care, don't care. Here's my money. I'm never going to cancel. 
but I just don't use the product for anything other than exactly what you built it for, which is to store my stuff, you know? Yeah. And you probably give them a 10 NPS and they're like, this yeah, yeah, absolutely perfect product NPS and he doesn't use it. Totally. But there, yeah. there, are, there are lots of examples like that. And then there are lots of products that, that incorrectly chase usage as a holy grail. So they start doing all these like pings to remind you to log in and you're like, to do what? <laughs> you know? So yeah, that, that, that will happen for sure. But in general, I would say most startups that I see these days, they, they're either like, you know, B2B developer tools or whatever. And uh, so they, they do kind of mandate some element of active usage. And then seeing decay in that is genuinely a problem. Yeah, and it's all in it's going back to what you talked about before. It's just understanding context, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Chief Strategy Officer Intercom, you've gotten there now. You've, I imagine, as the company's grown from, you know, a couple people, like you mentioned, I think it was started around four, right? Yeah, we were, we were four, and today we're like 600 and something. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine your hats have changed, your role has changed, your responsibilities mm-hmm. have changed as the company's grown. Talk to me about what role and maybe at what phase was the most difficult or easiest and why? Uh, my, my roles went from like product to building out customer support because we didn't have any, to building out uh, recruiting because we didn't have any, then people operations, then marketing for two years, and then I came back to product. And in every case, it's kind of been like chief strategy officer, go wherever we don't have a strategy and try to put something in place. That's kind of been what I've been doing. I think probably the area I found toughest initially was marketing. The difference between marketing and, say, the, where I am today, which is all of our R&D initiatives, is that like within R&D, generally speaking, like you have a few an- ancillary functions, and then you've got like designers, PMs, and engineers. And the ancillary functions might be like, you know, like uh, product analytics or whatever, right? like the teams that are attached, to, sorry, the, the functions that are attached to teams. What I found hardest about marketing was there's no actual job called marketer. There is demand generation and you're hiring quantitative people who can optimize adverts. There's brand where you're hiring people who probably are often pretty data averse, but they're very, very creative and they speak language of like touch and tone and texture and voice and brand. And then you have content marketing, which is all about the celebration of the written word and what what can we do best? Like an LFC intercom like has kind of grown up on content marketing. So like that's another important team. Then you've got like PR and AR, like analyst relations and public relations. Totally different skill set. That's all about connections and Rolodex and like just having good contacts in the press. And if you've got product marketing, which is all about obviously representing the product, the different skill set again, and a lot of copywriting in there for sure, but it's much, much more about attaching product to like, it's like demand side innovation in a sense, like finding out the best way to explain how the product can be used for maximum results and making sure that that's the marketing plays that true. And I, I don't even think I'm actually halfway done here, but like you've got marketing ops as well, which is entirely managing the systems that control data and attribution and campaigns. And man, I found that really hard, like just, it's not a team marketing, it's a team of teams and every single one of them is different and a lot of them don't understand each other and there's very different skill sets and you have to kind of hire for each of them and you're going to get it wrong and I did get it wrong a lot. I left marketing a much better marketer than I came in. I'm very confident of that. Like I have a really good appreciation for the art and craft now but like I genuinely like, I was really surprised at how like how complex it is and how rare a good marketing leader genuinely is. We have an exceptional one now but like to find somebody who is equally comfortable in the sort of creative aspects of say like brand and brand architecture and all that, along with being incredibly good on the quantitative elements to make sure that the ads that are running are actually profitable. It's a tough craft. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you 100%. <laughs> Having done the, the marketing for, for Pendo for five years, yeah. 
It, it was, uh, it's always challenging, right? Marketing yeah. is definitely a challenging space. And it's true too, you know, as you're growing a team, it's like you're looking for people that think about different things, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. brand or lead generation, those tend to be different types of people. And it's even harder as you're a small company because you're trying to get overlap, right? Or we want this guy to cover these two yeah, areas. Totally. And, like, and then the other thing is you need enough alignment within the org because typically what happens is you hire like five or six different leaders for each of these functions. And they all go and write up their own roadmaps of what they're going to do. And then you just kind of cross your fingers and hope that there's some overlap because otherwise you have this you know, very uh, like psychotic sort of marketing approach where like the brand team are pitching one thing, the adverts are saying another thing, the content marketing team are talking about something else. And you, you need to be like strong enough, but also like uh, have strong enough relationships to actually make sure that everyone starts from the strategy and works down and, and then works out how to collaborate with each other because every team needs each other. Like as in content can't go without brand, brand can't go without product marketing. Like it's all connected as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And a good leader tying it all together. So now chief strategy officer, right? Talk to me about what that means, what teams you oversee, what your yeah, job so is. Today, it means I oversee all of our R&D. So like everyone who, so like the people who report to me are our head of engineering, head of product and our CTO as well. So uh, everything about what Intercom builds for customers is what I do today. Chief strategy officer is perhaps a slightly, a slight relic of a title in that I had it while I was constantly changing jobs. Today, you could think of me as more of a kind of, you know, generic like head of all of R&D, basically. Got it. Got it. So, you know, chief strategy officer, lots of different roles, you know, specifically spent a lot of time around product. In, in products, a department that faces a lot of friction, right, with other teams, uh, customer success, design, engineering, sales. You know, how did you work to ease that friction to make sure everyone was kind of, you know, playing with the same goals in mind? I think the most important thing you do is it's not really at the high level. It's, it's actually how you design the teams. So in Intercom, we have like maybe 25 teams and every single team has a product manager, designer, and engineering manager. And they act as a type of triad like who like kind of lead the team. And then there are up to five engineers on that team, perhaps maybe slightly more on some teams if there's a large amount of technical ownership. And you look for the relationship at that level. And then the teams will roll up into groups where you'd have a group design manager, a group engineering manager, and a group product manager. And they'll roll up to directors who ultimately roll up to VPs who roll up to me. But that's like, you can't, I think mandating collaboration top down is a difficult thing to do versus making it a part of like, you know, a part of the shared success of any given team is good collaboration and making it clear to them at the low level that like if one of the three departments represented here, engineering, product or design fails, we are either going to build the wrong thing or we're going to build the thing wrong or it'll look ugly or it'll be buggy as hell. But in any case, none of you can succeed without all of you succeeding. And once people realize that, the, that shared sense of uh, initiative generally tend, uh, and like kind of effectively no merit for going it alone. Like, I don't care if somebody can produce to me better designs than we shipped. It's not relevant. I don't care if someone can produce to me a fantasy roadmap that we can't ship or if somebody you know, built amazing engineering refactoring that doesn't matter. Like, there's no incentive to isolate yourself. You only have a shared output. And that's what makes it work, basically. So, you know, talk to me, feedback's part of this, right? From? From everybody, right? Yeah, so of course. You're getting feedback from all the different teams. You're also getting feedback from the customers. Talk to me about how you guys manage feedback and what's the best way to prioritize across what must be like a 
<laughs> to tsunami, sorry, a tsunami yeah. of feedback, right? Yeah, it, it is, or, or multiple tsunamis, if you like. We explicitly state that there are many inputs to our roadmap, and we weight them depending on what the current state of the product is. So uh, if we know the product is technically, uh, like, so just let's just start. The inputs are things like product health, customer voice report, which is to people who use the product, what are they saying about it? The problems, to, uh, sorry, what we call like the voice of sales, which is why are we not closing deals? So when we lose, what do we lose over and why? Then we have like, uh, I, I could probably stop there. We also have like strategy, which is like, hey, what new shit do we think is important that no one's asking for? And then we have also iteration, which is like, hey, we shipped something last week. We need to keep working on it. So generally speaking, of those five inputs, the ones that you tend to have to pay most attention to, like strategy is all you work on in the early days because no one's ever asked for your startup to exist. So everything you're doing is in some sense pushing your strategy forward. Once you have paying customers, you generally tend to get like two to three different types of feedback. You get user feedback, which is like, hey, I tried to use your merge feature and it doesn't work or it's confusing or I don't know how to set up a message or I don't know how to install the analytics feature. And in those cases, you know, you're going to ultimately see churn if you, do, if you ignore that. Uh, you have sales feedback, which is like, hey, we always lose against Amplitude or whatever, whoever your competitor might be. And why do we always lose against them? Because they have the you know, CSV importer and you don't. Oh, okay. And so that's like another commercial opportunity, if you like. And then you have like, you know, maybe engineers telling you, hey, we can't build a CSV importer because we need to refactor how a data pipeline works or something like that. And the job of the PM is ultimately to balance all these and work out what's the best path that serves all people. So oftentimes that involves sizing. So what's the size of the risk represented and all the churn represented by all the customer voice requests? What's the size of all the revenue we could capture if we were to execute the sales requests? What's the probability of the risk of the technical weaknesses here? And are they either a threat to our existence today or will they, are they a threat to our velocity? Within Intercom, we run a velocity risk register, which is answers the question, what slows us down? And we try to tackle from there. And then at the end of it all, you have prioritization. So if the product is generally speaking on a good revenue trajectory and generally with a good MPS or whatever, I think you have freedom to pursue something that's neither of those two things. So you don't necessarily need to prioritize sales in that scenario because the product's growing well. You also don't need to prioritize customer voice report stuff because you're not, you know, you're getting a reasonably high MPS. So in that world, you might say, well, let's execute the next part of our strategy. No one's asking for video messaging, but let's build video messaging, that type of thing, right? Or you might know that like there's a, hey, one of the things that's going to slow us down massively in the future here is blast, so we should take time to rebuild that. So that's the job of like the feedback that comes in. It needs to hit some sense of quantified sourcing after being filtered to make sure you're only listening to the right customers and all that sort of stuff. You then basically have to like make a choice, which is like our, our strategy is X because of Y, and X is which of these inputs is going to be dominant and which will be secondary and tertiary. And then Y, in that case, is what's the data that we're reacting to and why does, this, why does it take precedent? So you mentioned two things I want to dig into. First, you know, MPS, you, you mentioned having a good MPS. A lot of people wonder, what is a good MPS? I, there is no good answer to that, honestly. Like I've been looking at this for quite a bit because it's actually it's an active concern of mine right now. There's like there's a few different parts to it, unfortunately. Like if you MPS people right after sign up, you'll get a very different score than if you MPS them like after a year. And if you MPS people who use part of your product versus a different part, you'll get different scores as well. You know, in general, the narrative says you want to be above 40. Uh, like that's what most people say is like, you know, you're starting to approach okay. But that's like, there is no one MPS is something I've significantly realized. Uh, and even within like 
Pando, I, I would bet that like you probably have sales-owned customers and self-serve customers. You probably have customers on a light plan and a premium plan. You probably have people who signed up 30 days ago and people who signed up three years ago. And you need to kind of be able to like slice and dice your NPS because wherever it's low and wherever it's high, you lose a lot of information when you just aggregate it all out, which is why like in Intercom, we recorded at multiple different touch points for multiple different types of customers. And it's, you know, I, I, I don't mean to be a slave to NPS here. I don't care what the actual me- metric is. The important thing is you should be able to know if it goes up or if it goes down. And that's why it can't be just pure qualitative. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I tell people a lot that I think the most important thing about NPS is the trend line mm-hmm. and specifically the trend line in segments, right? Because you're going to have different roles too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there might be your primary user, there might be the admins, there might be people that use it just occasionally because of XYZ, yeah. you know, and you're going to have different NPSs from those different roles. Yeah, there's lots of interesting things I think you can do by marrying segments and NPS and trends. For sure. You know, one of the things you talked about too is feedback from customers. Uh, and we often yeah. hear like there's this consternation with some PMs about differentiating between like needs and wants, right? What advice yeah. do you give people on that when they're getting customer feedback, how they can dig in and feel like, is this something customer has to have? Or is this something just the customer wants to have because he read about it or heard about it, you know, somewhere recently? I think I generally look to like the sort of source. So if somebody is not going to sign a deal or is going to churn over the lack of something, that's a pretty strong sign of a need. If you ask your customers for a generic, what else should we work on? You're almost going to always going to get one. Sorry, uh, things that people like want but don't necessarily need. And needs generally take the form of revenue, and wants generally take the form of maybe I'll get a positive tweet or a bit of praise, but it doesn't like it. It doesn't cross that threshold of being essential. What's interesting is like if you take a, in incidents like say a lot of startups who are like we're all set to launch during coronavirus. If you're not tied to a hardcore need no one's in the humor of taking on new invoices right now, right? Everyone has problems that they need solved. And yes, there are opportunistic things that could help, but it's like back to this idea of like this old argument of by Fred Wilson, I think, who talks about like vitamins versus painkillers. And I think um, the difference to me is the sign of a want is that you continue to use the product regardless or you adopt the product regardless. And the sign of a need is that it blocks you from signing up or it causes you to churn. And the only way you lose the market based on wants is when everyone's needs are equal. And then you're into this kind of feature fight, right? Where it's like, it's your checkbox grid against your competitors. So like for us, it would look like somebody going, well, Zendesk's got the following 27 features and Intercom's got the following like 25 and like seven of yours are different to theirs. So I'm going to ask Zendesk, are they going to build your seven? And I'm going to ask you, are you going to build their five? And that generally speaking is the kind of the path towards like homogeneity in a product space. And, you know, there's a significant risk there that if you only listen to those spurious wants, you'll end up kind of like the, you'll see the whole industry sort of converge on this one kind of bland view of like what the product, what the final product space should be like. And, and you can think of like certain product spaces that are like that, where like the only thing that barely changes is the logo and the typography, but everyone's got the same shit. And I think like, so, so like, I'm always wary of chasing once because it almost always comes from, well, I'll, uh, I saw your competitor is this, so now I want it. Got it. Got it. I think that's great. Well, we're, we're wrapping up at least for today, but uh, we will do a second session with Des in the next month or two. So for sure. stay tuned for part two. So let's, let's wrap up with one final question. Mm-hmm. Three words to describe yourself. Optimistic, honest, and detailed let's say awesome 
Well, thank you, Des. This was great. Greatly enjoyed it. Uh, it was a blast. Cool. Thank you very much for your time, Eric. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast.